1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You know, in our new cyber world, uh, there are threats and fears that we haven't faced before, uh, or at least to the degree that we do now in terms of stolen identity. You know, having your identity stolen is now a great fear among many people, and, and it's justifiable in many ways. I mean, losing an identity uh, has all kinds of serious ramifications. You can, uh, there are financial ramifications, of course, in terms of having accounts taken, monies taken, investments, ruining credit scores. There are some social implications in the sense that sometimes you can be accused of or even uh, convicted of criminal activity when your name has been misused. Although it may be cleared, it takes great effort to do that. Uh, there are emotional ramifications associated with, with uh, stolen identity in terms of just the labor to get your name clear. Uh, one survey average was 175 hours. It takes over two years if your name or identity is stolen, um, to get it back and get it cleared. I mean, there are serious implications. and It leads us to do much work to protect our identity with passwords and the like. Well, you know, that's just in terms of this world that we live in. But, but when you think about your identity as a Christian, when you're confused or perhaps misguided on your own identity, what does it mean to be a Christian? There are ramifications for that as well. Uh, when you're trying to live in light of other people or you're living in fear of other people or you're trying to f- pursue goals that the world has given to you and you're, you begin to wrap your identity up around those around you, the repercussions are great. They affect your faith. They affect your relationships. They affect your peace and joy in God. And so this letter that Peter's writing to us is really first about establishing your identity. Who are you before God? And that's the, that's the explanation of what we're going to go into in terms of exiles. What does it mean that you are now in exile? You once were not in exile, but now you are. So you have a new identity. You have a new status. And what does that mean? And we're going to find that this life of exile that we are now called to live in, it's a pilgrimage. Now, Peter's going to, throughout his letter, explain to us how do we live as exiles in this world that is not ours. But first... He wants to establish who we are before God. What does it mean that he would call us exiles? What's that mean for you? When you walk out the door in a few minutes, how are you going to understand yourself to be? Uh, These first two verses are significant in laying a good foundation for what is your identity. Now, of course, Peter is the writer. You notice him. He establishes himself. He's really identifying himself, actually, as the writer of this letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know Peter. So in, this, in these short two verses, these short two verses which are pregnant with thought, we're going to look at the author, Peter. We're going to look at the audience to whom he writes. That's us, the exiles. And then we're going to just kind of take a quick look at what he's going to write about in terms of this grace and peace being multiplied to us. What's that mean? But first, the author, Peter. So you know him. You've read across him in the pages of Scripture. 
Uh, Peter's kind of a, a funny character, one that I think we can quickly identify with. He seems a bit bold, a bit brash, maybe dim-witted at times. You kind of love him, though, don't you? Because when he's in, he seems like he's all in. And he oversteps and he missteps. And, you know, we we can kind of find him accessible. And yet at the same time, Peter was a bit arrogant. He was a bit argumentative. Uh, He was a bit challenging, I think, to Jesus. Kind of climaxing in the fact that he denies our Lord. He denies him at the very worst time. So so what establishes Peter as a legitimate authority to be able to write this letter to us? Should we really listen to Peter? Well, I would say yes, for a number of reasons. The least of which is that he was an eyewitness. I I mean, he was with Jesus throughout his entire ministry. I want to remind you, he he was an eyewitness and an earwitness to the ministry. He heard the teachings. He saw the confrontations. He saw the transfiguration when Jesus was fashioned in white and glory. He saw the miracles, the healings of the sick, the cleansing of the demonized, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. He was there at the raising of the dead when Lazarus was raised. I mean, he was there at those big points of Jesus' ministry. He was there when Christ was crucified. He was there when Christ was raised. So who else would we turn to for wisdom about Jesus? Who else would we look to He's the closest one. But there's another reason that you and I should listen to Peter in this letter, and that is that he states himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is an authorized spokesman for Christ. Now, he's not a counselor. He's not a life coach giving some suggestions to life. I mean, he is an authorized representative. He's not even a doctor giving a good remedy for an ill in life. He's an apostle. He's been designated by God to speak forth the truth of the gospel and to be an interpreter of it. I want you to understand that when he lays down, I'm an apostle, here's how Paul describes it to the Ephesian church. He says this, that you are fellow citizens and members of God's own household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles are the foundation of the church Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole body grows up to be a temple of the Lord. So he's a significant player that we ought to pay attention to what he says. But there's a little bit more. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not a representative of some ideology of a dead man. You know, if I got up and told you about the wisdom of Charles Spurgeon, there might be much profit to gain, but he's a dead man. But he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, according to Peter in chapter 3, he says this clearly. He says, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter is an apostle of a living and reigning king. Jesus Christ, the authorities, the the angels, they're all subjected to him. He's sitting and reigning. So when Peter's speaking to us, he's speaking clearly as one qualified to instruct us in a way that we don't, just, we don't just consider his words, but we follow them. We do them. Now listen, I recognize in this society and the media that we have and the electronic world we live in, you are bombarded by a thousand messages a day. I mean, you face influences and pressures constantly seeking to mold you into the identity they want you to have. You face 
You face, you hear voices all the time telling you what you need to look like, what you need to be, how you need to act, what you need to do to be accepted, what you need to do to perform, what you need to do to advance. You hear those all day. And yet Peter comes with a word that says, no, I'm going to speak to you about who you are. This is what we call the inspiration of the Bible, that we listen to it. The doctrine of biblical inspiration isn't that when you read the Bible, you feel inspired. You know, kind of like if you watch a riveting movie and, and, and this guy comes from being out of shape and now he's a star athlete. I'm going to get in shape too. This isn't inspiring literature. This is literature that has been inspired by God through the pen of men to write down exactly what God wants us to do, what God wants us to know. This is the inspiration. of the, Peter speaks about this actually in his second letter. He says these words. He says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is arguing for you to accept his words as just that. He was carried along by the Spirit when he wrote these words. And so what I'm calling you to is that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. We listen to him. I mean, I, I want his words to shape and form us. That where there is encouragement to be received, let's be encouraged. Where there are changes to make in life, let's make the changes. Let's hear these words of Peter as the very words of God. This is what the doctrine of inspiration is. And many of you right now are reading the Bible through the year. Many of you probably are sticking with it. Some of you may be faltering a little bit. Push on. Push on. Just Just pick up where you left off and push on. The words that we've been given are life for us. So so for the writer here, we want to approach this book, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, we want to approach the book as if God were speaking to us. Okay, the second thing, he writes to somebody. Obviously, when you write a letter, you have someone to whom you designate it, and Peter has an audience in mind. And he calls us the elect exiles of the dispersion and Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. These are places, you notice how Paul will often write to one church, he writes to five. And and these churches are in these Roman provinces, which are in Asia Minor, or now modern-day Turkey. We don't know if Peter had ministered to these churches. Perhaps some of the exiles uh, from Rome, some of the Christians were pushed out of Rome to these provinces. We don't, it could be that this was the root in which the letter would tra- uh, travel. We don't know for sure. But the bigger issue is why is Peter calling us, the church, exiles? Why would he call us exiles? Now, you know what an exile is. I mean, it's a person that lives in a land that's not his own. It's a person that doesn't have the rights and the citizenship in, in the land that he lives. You know, when Carol and I were living in Austria, uh, working with refugees coming out from behind the Iron Curtain, we were not strictly exiles, but we sure did feel like them. It was not a comfortable position to be in, different culture, different language. They do things differently. <clears throat> they would go into restaurants, and sometimes the restaurants would have animals in them, dogs, you know, pets. And Oftentimes they liked animals in the restaurant before little children. <clears throat> Couldn't believe that. They had other things, you know, trying to find mustard in the grocery store. It's called Zemp, and it comes in a little, like a toothpaste tube. And it just differences that you know you're not, you're not from here. 
You know, they close their stores from 12 to 2, kind of a, a siesta, if you will. So you go to do your banking at lunch, and you're constantly reminded, I'm not from here. So then why would he call us as exiles? Well, he calls us as exiles because your identity now, that you're a Christian, while you presently live in this world, you're not of this world anymore. You're a citizen of heaven. That your real home is in the new heavens and the new earth with God. That's what he's saying to you. Now, I know you know this cognitively, but in terms of your daily experience, it's so hard because we're from here. This feels so comfortable because it's so known. But Peter's saying, no, this is the change I'm introducing to you. The new status, you're not from here. You have a citizenship, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, your citizenship is now in heaven with God. That yes, you presently live in this world, but you're not from here. In the sense of the norms and the customs and the values, you have a heavenward bent. That's what he means by this being in exile. This is really going to be the theme of the letter, is, is walking out how do we live as exiles in this land? How do we live as, as foreigners or aliens when we feel so comfortable here? And so that's what Peter's going to instruct us in this letter. But before he gets to the details of what it means to be an exile, he's telling us how we became exiles. Notice, look in verse 2 again. Because Peter, this is kind of an unusual salutation for the New Testament. In other words, you have normally the apostle identifies himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect exiles in the dispersion. That's all normal. And then right after identifying the audience, typically you hear this, grace and peace be multiplied to you. But he sticks in verse 2. I mean, that's like backing up a truck of theology and just dumping it into one verse. Look at those three prepositional phrases because they're describing to you how you, in fact, came to be in exile. It's teaching you what changed you from being a child of the world to being a child of God. And I want to just take a few minutes and unpack these things for you a little bit because they're very dense, but they're very rich. And in understanding them, you will be able to walk out your exilic life with greater success. So he's saying this, that you're in exile, and then he goes into these three phrases. Let's look at each one. First, he says you're in exile according to to the foreknowledge of God your Father, according to the foreknowledge of God your Father. Now, Peter's saying clearly that you're not in exile by accident. You're not in exile by self-determination, but you're in exile according to the foreknowledge. Now, you see election and you see foreknowledge in here, two of most people's favorite words. And you begin to think, wow, we'd like to just stop here and we're going to move to James 1 for a while. But I want to explain these to you a little bit, even though it's going to be perhaps a little confusing. When, when you see this idea of, of foreknowledge and election, nobody debates that they're in the Bible. Here they are. We just read them. The debate around election or predestination or foreknowledge is on what basis did God elect the sinner to be the saint? On what basis? Now, one option that is embraced by many is that God kind of looks down the halls of time into the future and he sees those men and women who will choose him and who will, who will, who will choose him. And so God elects them based upon their choice of him. 
Now, I, I struggle with that a little bit, and I'd like to explain why. First, God has no future. He is Yahweh. I am. There is no past. There is no future to God. God isn't waiting for the new year. He, he doesn't wait for the ball to drop on December 31. He's outside of time. There is no future to God. He sees all things as they are. So there's no looking down the hall for God to see who will choose him. But, but secondly, and I would say almost more importantly, if God's election of us is rooted in our election of him, then how can we proclaim a gospel of grace? Because the gospel, uh, our our salvation then, is somehow tied to, rooted in, my prior choice of God for him to choose me. And and, and so what does it mean to say that we've been saved by grace? We should say, we've been saved because I've made a good decision. And even if you want to say, well, God helps us make the decision, well, then it's put your arm around God and you did it together. But but it, it wouldn't be of grace. It would be of grace and something, namely a good decision that you made. I think what he's saying rather, and I just submit this to you, when he says uh, that we are exiles according to the foreknowledge of God, he's saying that God knew us and loved us first, before we knew and loved him. And the reason I say that is because it's tied up in the definition of the word knowledge. Knowledge in scripture is more than factual or event, but it's about people. For example, the first time used in Genesis 4.1, it says, Adam knew his wife. Now, of course, that's speaking specifically to their sexual intimacy. But that's a picture of the knowledge. It's a covenantal love for a person. You see the same thing in Amos chapter 3 when God speaks to Israel. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, clearly God knows everyone on the earth. But he says, you only have I known, because he knew Israel in a unique covenantal way. Or he says the same in Jeremiah 1.1. Before Jeremiah's being launched as a prophet, he says this, before you were born, I knew you. It's not that he knew about him, of course he did. But he knew him in a covenantal, in a relational way. We see Jesus say the same thing with this idea of knowing. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember it in chapter 7, Jesus says, on that day, he's speaking about the judgment day, on that day many will come to me and will say to me, hey, we did this in your, in your name and we did this miracle in your name. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, of course he knew them, but he didn't know them in a loving and saving way. And so when it says here that you're an elect exile, according to the foreknowledge of God, he's saying this, that God sovereignly initiated a loving covenantal relationship with you before time began because he wanted to love you. He initiated that relationship. And if you love God right now, if you're here as a Christian and you love God, do you know what it says in 1 Corinthians 8, 3? He says, if anyone loves God, he has been known by God. He knew you and loved you. And your evidence of that is that you love him. Now, I know this is controversial for many people, but I want to assure you that when Peter wrote these words, he wasn't trying to introduce a theological knot that nobody could untie. He was introducing to us a mystery that was to just gather our attention and leave us in wonderment over the mystery of God's great love for us. This is an encouragement to us, this doctrine of God's foreknowledge. Why? Because if your election 
rests in your continued grasp of God and you maintaining a perfect love for him without distraction, you ought to be concerned because we are a people of wandering hearts. No, no, no. The election is grasped by his foreknowledge, not by ours. And then secondly, it's an encouragement to us in this way. You know, many of us know that we have periods of feeling quite unworthy. And and we feel unworthy to be even loved of God. You look at your life, you look at your sins, you look at repeated failures, and you're thinking, "I, I just don't know that God can really love me. Look at who I am. And what that tends to What that tends to do is it tends to either send us into despair. You know, I'm not even savable. Why should I even try? I'm just going to do what I'm going to do because it doesn't matter anyways. I can't be loved by God and I feel so unworthy. And it just gives you a green light into doing whatever you wanted to do anyways. Or we go the other way and we say, you know, I got to try harder. I got to read my Bible more. I'm going to have to memorize more. I'm going to have to go to church more. And, and we move into this legalistic track of, well, if I do these things now, he'll love me. Both of those are distortions of the gospel. And this saves us from that distortion. This lets us know that God chose us, knowing all about us. There's nothing, there's nothing that you have or will ever think do that he didn't know when he chose to love you. So you, you, you don't have to flee God in the midst of your sin. You can run to him. He already knows it. It's an encouragement that you're in exile according to the foreknowledge of God. But look at the next aspect. He says this, that you're an exile in the sanctification of the Spirit. Here we see the second member of the triune God enter into this scene of salvation. The Spirit comes, and we're sanctified in the Spirit. It means that if you're a Christian, it's because the Spirit has stirred within your soul desires to pursue Jesus Christ. The Spirit is the one that opens our eyes to the beauty of Christ as a Redeemer. The Spirit is the one that opens our eyes to see our sins as an offense to God. I spent a lot of years justifying my sins as consensual, or nobody was hurt. But then one day the eyes open and you realize, no, God's offended by my sin. He's a holy God. Was that me coming to a greater reality? And Tom just moved into some deeper thought that exposed that to him? No, it's the Spirit opening our eyes. The Spirit is the one that awakens our soul to believe in the promises of the gospel. The gospel that may have been repeated to you 50 times, maybe 500 times before you believed. You're now an elect exile. You're now a child of God because the Spirit did this work. And this is exactly what the Scriptures say. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, he says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Or he says it even, he ties it in with election in 2 Thessalonians. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So we see the Spirit move on us to give us new life. If we love God, the Spirit has moved already, regenerating us, taking out a heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh. But the Spirit keeps moving. This is the glorious thing about the Spirit. Is not only does He give us new life, but the Spirit is the one that leads us by conviction and repentance on this pilgrimage. 
The Spirit is moving us through convicting us of sin, leading us to find a gospel sufficient to refresh us and, and, and encourage us. And then we move, we remind ourselves of the gospel, and we walk in the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And by doing that, he leads us from glory to glory, perfecting us. God said, or Paul wrote in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in us will complete it in Christ Jesus. That's the role of the Spirit. But there's more. Look at the third phrase here. The third phrase is that uh, we have been elect for obedience to Christ and sprinkled with his blood. What does this mean? Well, this is the work of Jesus, sprinkling us clean, dying on the cross, shedding his blood for our sins, that we might be forgiven and not just forgiven from the penalty of sin, but also empowered to walk over the power of sin. That Jesus Christ has not just brought forgiveness to us, but he's broken the dominion of sin so that now we can obey. Do you realize that the gospel doesn't just save you from the penalty? But do you realize that the power of the gospel saves you from the power of sin? First, let me give you an example. So Carol and I get to the end of the month. Money's tight. We're beginning to worry. What are we going to do? How are we going to pay the bill? And, And we can begin moving in fear. We can begin maybe... Maybe saying, well, maybe we can't give this much this month, Lord, or whatever we end up doing. And then we think, no, the gospel tells us that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not graciously give us all things? So the gospel now gives me the power to believe, yes, I will trust you, God, that you're going to provide for me and my needs so I can walk in obedience to you in this time of temptation. The gospel doesn't just save us from the penalty. It saves us from the power of sin. And so the life of the believer that has been sprinkled clean by the work of Christ is won by marked obedience. Not perfect obedience, but increasing obedience. You know, it was attributed to Martin Luther who said these words. He said, faith alone saves. We believe that, right? Faith alone saves. But faith that saves is never alone. It, it always has works following it. This is how we know if we've been known by God. Are there evidences of growing obedience in your life? Do you find an increasing love for God? Do you find increasing desire to know more of his word? Do you find an increasing desire to serve others or to sacrifice for others? If you find love for God in your heart, we've already read in Corinthians, it says, if anyone loves God, he has been known by God. That's evidence. Remember now, evidences of obedience do not provide assurance for us. The assurance that you and I have of being reconciled to God rests on the finished work of Christ alone. The the obediences that we walk in are just evidence of that great work has been applied to our lives. Now, I recognize some of you here are struggling. You say, but I really don't know that I've been that obedient. I, I, I repeatedly sin. And I would say, well, do you repent of your sin? Do you mourn over your sin? Um, you know, it was Jesus who said, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And in other words, the fact that I'm not sinless doesn't deny my, the reality of my faith with God. I do sin, and I feel the conviction of the Spirit, and I mourn over my sin. But then I remember the promise of the gospel that I have been forgiven, and that comforts me, and then I move again towards greater obedience in life. That's what he's saying here. 
He's saying here that this is a picture of a triune salvation. You're an elect exile because God the Father in time past, in his foreknowledge, he chose you. And, and that, that, that great act of grace from God was worked out in the presence by the conviction of the Spirit, opening your eyes to the glory of Christ. And, and the work of Jesus now, that, sanct, that, that saving work, is now evidence in your life as you work in obedience. Do you see this triune nature of salvation? We sang it in that last song of the first set. This Father, the Spirit, and the Son. This is why we are Trinitarians. Our salvation isn't just Jesus dying on the cross, it's God moving with grace. The Spirit awakening our souls to look at the finished work of Christ, which is by which we're reconciled to God. I mean, do you marvel over that? Do you ever stop and consider the grace that you are known by God? I mean, that, that he has known you from eternity? Do you ever stop and consider that it was the Spirit that woke you to him? I, I mean, maybe you're sitting here and you've always thought that maybe I just heard a preacher that was really persuasive that day. No, it wasn't the preacher. It was the preacher's words may have been used, but it was the Spirit igniting those words. Do you ever stop and consider that you've been cleansed from your sin, all of us have basements, folks. We've all got stuff in the closet. And it was all sprinkled clean. I mean, can you sit? Now, I, I, don't, I hope you're not sitting here thinking, this is pretty high stuff, pretty high theology. Let me tell you how relevant this is. Every human being here, we all have various needs. And one of our greatest needs is to be a meaning, to have meaning, to have purpose in life, right? Uh, we all want to have that. It's a good thing. We have a need uh, to be valuable, to have purpose and meaning. And the world offers us ways that we can get that purpose. We can get that meaning. Uh, maybe get in a good, deep relationship with somebody where you're, deep, you know, where you're desperately needed. Or maybe get a good job and succeed in it, and you can find purpose and meaning through all the value that you're bringing to the job. You know, the, the world gives all kinds of options on how to get meanings. But do you realize how precarious those foundations are? I, I, I mean, if, if you try to find meaning in a relationship, what happens when the relationship fails you or the person dies? Or if it's in a job, what happens if the job's terminated? Well, what happens to your meaning then? Does it just evaporate? But see, the gospel offers us meaning. And the meaning it offers us is that God has loved you from eternity past. I mean, the, the, the cosmic creator that right now is suspending all things in their being, he knows you and loves you. Is there anything, you know, I get excited if someone of, of significance recognizes me in a crowd. Ooh, I'm known by somebody. But, but how about God? I've known you and I've loved you forever, and I'll love you forever. I mean, is that not meaning? Listen to what J.I. Packer says. These are just startling words. It's a little bit longer of a quote, so bear with me. He says, what matters supremely is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I'm graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend who loves me. There's not a moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is an unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love for me is utterly realistic 
based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself. There's nothing that can quench his determination to bless me. That is what it means. That's real. That's practical. But you have another need. You have a need to improve, don't you? We all want to improve. Why do we do these New Year's resolutions? You know, we want to get faster. We want to get thinner. We want to get smarter, whatever. We have all the, we, nobody wants to be the same at the end of the year, do you? Don't you always think, I've got to do this better? Well, the world again offers and say, hey, we've got some offer for you. The world offers uh, you know, their worldly counsel, life coaches, and so forth. Or you can turn to the myriad of self-help books on here's how you can get better. Well, the gospel answers how we get better. It's the promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Spirit is going to sanctify us through and through. Through conviction of sin, he's going to lead us to repentance and, and forgiveness. Think about it. You know, sin dehumanizes us. But the Spirit convicts us of sin, that we repent and we, be, and we can be made fully human. Change comes through the Spirit, not through a self-help book. Another need that you and I have, a need, what do we do with all the guilt that we have? And that aching and gnawing sense of, of shame over what we've said or what we've done. As you look back in your life, we all have these things. What do you do? Well, again, the world is there to, to kind of peddle their offerings. Well, you can blame it on other people. You can blame it on your parents. You can blame it on your environment. Or if you need to, we can anesthetize it with alcohol or with drugs or with distractions. We won't deal with our past. We're not going to look at it. And the basement just gets fuller and fuller and fuller. But the gospel meets our greatest need by offering us Christ who has washed us clean of our sin. You know, really, the Christian, if you think about it, even if you're not a Christian here, the Christian is the most honest one because we can legitimately say, this is who I am. You know what? This is what you got. I'm a mess and I'm broken and I, I need massive help. But there is help on the way. It's on the hill. There's a cross that brings me help and cleans out my basement, forgives me of my sins, and it meets my greatest need. How do I deal with the train load of stuff I'm hauling? I just look to Christ, and he forgives me, washes me clean. This, is, this gospel, this triune gospel, meets our every need, our most relevant needs that we have. If you're a Christian here, that means that you have transferred, you have long trusted in your ability to please God, and you've transferred it to Christ in this triune salvation that I've just spoken about. That's what it means to be a Christian. And, and, and if you're not a Christian, then you will stand before God on the merits of yourself. And I will, I will let you think through in your mind if that is a profitable venture. But I would say this, to become a Christian here today, to become a Christian is to confess that I need this salvation. I need this triune God that has chosen me before time began, that sent a son to quicken my spirit, and sent the spirit to quicken my soul to turn my eyes to the son that has come to cleanse me. That's what it means to be a Christian. So that's what Peter starts out with. Christians, you're exiles now. Chosen by God, sanctified by the spirit, washed in the blood of Christ. Now, notice what he goes to. Then he goes to the salutation. Make peace and grace be multiplied to you. 
This is incredible. How do we get this? Well, A, this is kind of grace and peace multiplied to us. But what he's speaking about is when you begin to walk now as an exile, you'll have this grace and peace. And what's he going to be speaking about? Let me just quickly just draw your minds, because I'd like you to begin reading through the book of 1 Peter. I did it this morning. I've been doing it through this month. If you just read through it today, you start at 1 o'clock, you'll be finished by 1.20. It only takes 20 minutes even to read through it slowly. Begin to familiarize yourself with it because there's a number of things you're going to face. Number one, we're called to rejoice in our salvation. We're going to see that next week. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Think about that. We're called to rejoice in the fact that our salvation is according to his mercy and not your performance. That's something to rejoice over. Our salvation is undefiled. It's unperishable. It is unfading. It's kept. God is securing our salvation. Folks, this is something to rejoice over. This is why different authors will say, preach the gospel to yourselves every day. Every day you ought to be looking out at this beautiful gospel. You know, for us not to rejoice over this salvation, for us not to think over what he's done, it's like building a beautiful house on a Pacific coast and boarding up all the windows. We're not going to look at any of the beauty in front of us or or having a precious diamond that we're going to put in a box and we're going to stick in the back of the closet. We're never going to look at it. No, we're called to look and rejoice over the salvation. And he'll talk about that in chapter 1 and into chapter 2. But he's also going to talk about not just rejoicing, but responding to this culture in love. Listen, he's going to get practical in the middle of chapter 2 through chapter 3. He's going to talk about us being good citizens, about being good employees and employers, about being good neighbors and taking care of our city, about being good spouses where women are gentle and men, men, we are understanding of the unique value of our wives. It is possible that we be understanding of them. He's going to speak to us about that. What he's saying is that in the different spheres of your life, that you're to be different from the world because you're in exile. Now, you're not to be odd to the world, which is what we generally end up looking like. We don't want to be oddballs. We want to be different from the world, but attractive to the world. And and isn't fidelity in marriage more attractive than a series of relationships with women, one broken after another? Isn't, Isn't humility more attractive than bold arrogance and brashness? Isn't giving of yourself more attractive than taking and demanding rights? I mean, are, isn't, isn't what we learn in the Scriptures more attractive in the long run to people? That's, that's the kind of people we're to be. That's how we're to not pull away from the culture. No, we're to ram ourselves in it, living according to his word. And, and then the third thing that we're going to see in this book <clears throat> is being resolute in suffering. The whole book is going to be about suffering, actually. And Peter's going to speak to us about suffering, the reasons why we suffer, because we're exiles. I want you to recognize that the bulk of suffering that the church has experienced, according to one author, has never been martyrdom, although it is increasing now in our age. It's been ostracism. It's been mockery. It's been isolated from the culture. That's the bulk of the persecution. And Peter's going to help us understand that as exiles, that's coming. But how do we respond? We respond by doing good. 
we respond by having prepared a defense for the hope that's within us. And then the last thing we're going to see is remembering the day. Over and over, folks, you're pilgrims. The Christian is a pilgrim. You are not designed for this world. You're designed for new heavens and new earth that he has created for us. And so we need to keep in our minds and before our minds, the reality is that the pilgrim on his journey is happy because the journey is going to end one day. And when that journey ends, it's a good day for us. Why? Because we get to go home. Jesus has entered our exile to lead us from our exile back to home, which is back to his father. So let's take a minute now and consider these things. Peter, an apostle, has written to us. He's written to us as elect exiles, and he's reminded us of the nature of our identity. You have been known by God. You have been sanctified by the Spirit, and you've been washed, sprinkled clean by the blood of the Lamb. So let's take a minute now, and in silence, we're just going to perhaps confess your sins or to give thanks to God for his mercy. And then an elder will close us in just a moment. Thank you.